There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is number six. The State of the Schools, the Schools of the State. This is a conversation that I had with Dave Smith from Part of the Problem podcast. It was a very well-reviewed show by my audience and his, and it is a pretty broad sweep of the history of public schooling and the culture and politics of the schools and the colleges. So it's kind of a historical, political, cultural survey of where we were at with public school before it really got bad. And I mean, this is right before. We recorded this in February of 2020. So in short, in this show, we establish a kind of pattern too as it comes to the history of this institution. With every turn of the school screw into individual family and community life, there is often shock at first. If you think about the things that are happening in the news right now, and then the shock and the outrage kind of dissipates and whatever that initially shocking thing was becomes normalized. And then once something becomes normalized, it basically becomes invisible until the next shocking intrusion takes place. In these presentations, especially this one, I've thought carefully about how to not be overwhelming with the history of school. It is a massive endeavor of scholarship to understand all of the different interests that participated in the creation of this system over time. So I thought this was, like I said, a good summary, a good synopsis uh, that needed to be included in these first 10 shows that deal with the real problems of public schooling. After this, we're going to move on to talking about school during the pandemic. In the very next show, you'll hear from a character called The Honest Teacher, who will discuss what it has been like working with students in this uh, new, I'm not going to say new normal, the new abnormal. And using what you're going to hear today, as a kind of foundation of understanding that big, deep and dark history show will follow soon after. That one might make a good share if you have a still semi-curious left-wing slash progressive friend, if you still think such things are possible. But I'm very confident that show contains some of the most convincing information about the need to escape, or at least get very, very serious about surviving the public school system. 
Oh, by the way, Dave coins a great line in this show that I missed, but I'm going to start using now. I keep referring to college as higher education, and I recognize it's not the best term because it has the word education in it, and a lot of what's happening isn't educational. So Dave calls it in this show, higher indoctrination. And I let it slip by at the time, but when I was listening back to it, I said, I like that. So we've got public school and higher indoctrination. Well done, Dave Smith. If you're getting value out of these productions, out of this curated collection of our essential shows, please consider lending your support. There's a lot more content where this came from, and we're creating new shows for supporting members every week. You can go to patreon.com slash school sucks. You can see a variety of donation options in the show notes for every episode. Your help is greatly appreciated. We have much more to do uh, with the School Sucks Project after this collection of shows completes. And I'm a little bit pressed for time at the moment. I'm on my way to the airport to catch a plane to Austin, Texas. I will be home by the time you hear this, assuming Texas doesn't secede while I'm there. And then I got to get a passport to get back here. I'd probably stay there, actually. But because time is short, I want to tell you at the beginning, I've been saving this for the end. Uh, today's conversation is also going to inspire you to take more seriously alternatives to higher indoctrination. And we have a great partner called Praxis. You can learn more about Praxis by entering through our link in the show notes or right at the front page of schoolsucksproject.com. Praxis is an apprenticeship program and a professional boot camp, much shorter than college, much more affordable than college, and with much better job prospects on the other side. It is a program designed for ambitious and entrepreneurial young people, and they have been impressing me with their work and their output for a good seven or eight years at this point. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this show. Thank you for your continued support and engagement. I see you all out there downloading, commenting, liking, following. I really, really appreciate it, and it is very energizing right now. So thank you. And... You are about to listen to The Essential School Sucks, number six, originally released February 10th, 2020, as podcast 641, Brett, on Part of the Problem with Dave Smith. Thanks for listening, and take care. Everybody's wasting time. Everybody's Hi, everybody. This is Brett. Welcome back to the show. Today is Monday, February 10th. And what you are going to be hearing today, arguably the biggest interview that I've ever done. So I was very grateful to be invited on Part of the Problem with Dave Smith after I had him on my show a couple weeks ago. My mission with Dave's very large audience was to demonstrate that the issue, the problem of public schooling is a very, very important and too often overlooked part when it comes to the conversation about and the pursuit of individual liberty. Now, if you've come to us from the Part of the Problem audience, and this is the first episode of School Sucks that you've ever encountered, please don't start here. You already heard this. If you want to learn more about the topics I covered with Dave, go to schoolsucksproject.com slash gato. If I made a mistake in this show, it was this, not mentioning the name John Taylor Gatto because his are the shoulders that I got to stand on to do a lot of these presentations uh, on the history of school. In fact, uh, I produced a video series based on excerpts from his book, The Underground History of American Education. 
Today, Dave and I will talk about his first encounter with my work was this very, I would say, dated video that I made seven or eight years ago called The American Way. <laughs> dated, but it's very relevant today. Video called uh, The American Way, Our Connection to Nazi Germany. And if you watch that and you thought that was impactful, I highly recommend checking out this video series. Uh, a lot of there's, I think there's 15 total and some of them are very short, very shareable, self-contained. Two that come to mind, one is called The Art of Driving, and another is called Public School, A Conspiracy Against Ourselves. So that's schoolsucksproject.com slash gato, and you can see the video titles and all of the descriptions there, and you can learn a lot about John Taylor Gatto, who is a very, very important figure. So if you're looking to spread the message about the public school problem, this would be a very good place to start. At this point, we've built out, I would say, a pretty comprehensive picture of problems and solutions. And most of this podcast, despite its title, is geared towards the solutions. craziness in the world going on i have a, a fantastic guest on today's show who i'm thrilled to have on brett vanat from the school sucks project one of the best podcasts out there i i absolutely love it i just did it uh recently so brett thank you very much for coming on uh the show great to see you again yeah thanks for having me dave great to talk to you again Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I, uh, there's, there's been a lot of craziness going on the last couple of days. I figured we would, uh, we, we would start by talking about a little bit of that. But just for anybody who's not familiar uh, with, with what you do, tell them a little bit about the, the School Sucks uh, project and how you, how you got into this and what, what the mission is, what it's all about. Absolutely. I would say first and foremost, um, a kind of public school liberation advocate for the people who want it. You know, like I'm not looking to reform the system. I'm not advocating any political solutions on my show. Uh, but doing the podcast since 2009, and I got into it, you know, primarily just out of frustration with my own work. I had been a teacher. I had been a college consultant. I ran a tutoring business in, in New Hampshire. I was a very failed student. You know, I got uh, reports from the school regularly indicating this. I limped into uh, the 13th grade, and, you know, my attitude about learning just happened to change there with the, with the right exposure to the right subjects at the right time. And, uh, you know, graduated, went on to grad school, became a history teacher, and that was how my career began. And it was just, I don't know if it was like a part like lazy attitude or a part uh, defiant attitude, but I just kept finding problems everywhere I went and, you know, moving laterally sometimes or, you know, changing jobs entirely, looking for the perfect role in education. And um, I didn't find it until I started podcasting. So happy ending so far. Yeah. Very, I, I would say so. So the first time I ever uh, heard of you was a video that is to this day one of, I, I think, my favorite videos that I've ever seen in my life. 
um that was up i, I believe it's it's on on your channel um I'm, I'm sorry i'm blanking on the the title of it it's something like uh, is this american history it's the thing where you compare nazi germany the rise of the nazis and go through the prussian uh, uh uh school and how school came to be and it's just incredible what's the title of it it's called uh the american way and then the subtitle is our connection to nazi germany in fact i got uh so much uh incredulity in the comments about that that I went on to produce, I think, like a five or six hour series expanding the the contents of that video. And I've done more videos about that subject in the years that followed. And the basics of it are that our school system was delivered into this country in the middle of the 1800s from the very, very militaristic, anti-individualistic land of Prussia, which uh, 100 years later, uh, you know, those people were schooled uh, in in military obedience and nationalism, and they became very memorable. You know, they they wound up making their mark on world history by the middle of the 1900s. Uh, but that system was brought here a hundred years earlier. That's the connection that I was trying to make. It was kind of a warning, like this is where it could go. Not that I'm the only person who's ever made that warning or drawn those parallels, but that's uh, that's what that video was all about. Well, it was the first time I uh, was introduced to that history. Like, I didn't know that. And I thought I knew a pretty good amount about, like, the rise of the Nazis and, and you know, like, the Second World War and things like that. And it really is one of those things that if you don't – you know, there's lots of different elements to understanding the rise of the Nazis. Of course, there's uh, World War One and the Treaty of Versailles and all, all the things that happened to the German people and all the different groups and communism, the threat of communism and all these different things. But if you don't understand the school aspect and the the Prussian kind of um, uh, uh, success in indoctrinating young would-be soldiers, you're not going to understand the full picture. And by the way, the video, if you haven't watched it, you got to go. It's got like a few hundred thousand views, but then I've seen it shared by a ton of other people and that, that those will have like a hundred thousand views on it. So it's probably been viewed by a ton of people. It's also just really – it's got the uh, – what's the beat uh, to that uh, exhibit, paparazzi it song. does, yeah. I forgot it. about that. Yes, that is exhibit, and that, and it really adds a lot to it. Sick beat, by the way. Sick beat behind it, but just an, one of my still to this day one of my favorite videos uh, that I've ever seen. So that was the first time I got uh, uh, introduced to you, and then I think I heard you on that Tom Woods show mm-hmm. and started listening after that. And just I, I highly recommend go go check it out. One of the best podcasts out there. It's School Sucks podcast. Uh, it's what School Sucks Project dot com. School Sucks Project dot com is our website. Yep. Very good. Um, okay, so uh, and of course, and we're going to talk more about this. And and uh, you know, uh, of course, all of the things. If you're looking at anything about um, modern politics, it's it's hard to completely divorce it from the fact that the government runs the schools. So uh, hard. There's, so there's hard always, to do. Yeah, I mean, there's this has a, a big influence, and it was something because I knew you were coming on today. It's something I've been thinking about over the last uh, uh, couple days. But holy moly, there's a few things in the news that have just been wild. Okay, really quick, this is Brett from now. Right here, I snipped about 10 minutes out of the conversation. Out of respect for your time, I'm always going to try and respect your time. Dave introduces this next segment as some really wild things happening in the news. Turns out the really wild things happening in the news in February of 2020 didn't really compare to the wild things of March, April, May, June, July. So it's possible you might find that portion of the discussion a little underwhelming. So we'll fast forward and get to what is relevant. Here we go. You know, it's it's hard to even fathom that after the 20th century, uh, you know, if, if there <laughs> yeah. was like one lesson, uh, you, you would think that this whole socialism ideology would have been just so soundly defeated. 
Um, and and of course, the I, I do think the best you know a- explanation for why it's still alive is what what you always focus on, which is the the indoctrination and the the fact that people are basically taught. Um, from a very, very young age. I mean, even the stuff that you don't even think about as being so, you know, it's like how a bill becomes a law is what like second graders are taught. And it's like this noble process that you're supposed to be, you know, accepting, well, this is this is the will of the group. And this is, you know, it's always couched in the language of voluntarism. Like this is your representative democracy. It's really you who did this. Um, and uh, it, it is definitely, definitely creepy. To, uh, to see how this is all playing out. Well, also, too, if you think about like the school environment, which is just the perfect garden for those kinds of ideas to eventually grow. Like I, you know, I was in public school between uh, 1983 and 1995, and I don't remember any like overt political or economic messaging, but the subtleties that are there and like, you know, the whole environment, which is like you're trapped there. You have to ask permission to speak. You have to ask permission to use the bathroom. Um, so obviously, like your orientation towards or your respect for freedom or privacy or individuality, like all those things are compromised. And I think a lot of people walk away from that experience with an angst where um, they'd be willing to go to college and buy into a kind of um, a victim mentality or uh, ingratitude or uh, even resentment. And you're looking for a place to point that. So like when these economic ideas come along for most people later in high school or in college, they're like, oh, yeah, the world is a terribly unjust place between the haves and the have nots and people are victimized and capitalism is to blame. Sure. What the fuck do I know? So, yeah, I think it's the the whole school environment primes people, you know, with numerous other factors to to buy into those ideas in in their early 20s. And then, you know, hopefully they work and uh, change their mind as a result of having a job. Yeah, there's there's no question that there is something really uh, authoritarian, top down, it, it, like like something about the school model really just encourages obedience, and everybody kind of knows that who's been through school. There's not like um, there, it, it's not the most creative or even the most intelligent students who necessarily get rewarded, but it is the ones who can memorize and regurgitate and please the the ruler or the teacher in this case, like that's kind of who shines. And there's something just in that, that even if you're not, you know, I- I expressly telling students uh, that, you know, like this overt political message, you're you're it, it's obviously being ingrained in them that you kind of like follow the leader, memorize, regurgitate. You stay in your row of desks while the one leader up here is talking to you. And that is like I mean, that that's the best kind of microcosm of statism that I could think of. Yeah, that conditioning definitely exists. And teachers are stuck in that, too. You know, I know that from experience. Like, I worked in a really high-stress environment. I was in a boarding school for a while. Even, like, the day school that I worked at, a lot of the kids had, like, emotional problems, behavior problems. And, um, yeah, you get into a pattern. I mean, it's a, it's a lazy pattern, and it's a really high-burnout work. But your favorite kids become the ones that you can ignore. And I think all teachers deal with stress to, to that, you know, maybe not to that level, but to some level. And and they get caught in that as well. Like, oh, you're a good kid because you don't require my effort. You don't produce headaches because there are, you know, so many like things coming down from the top on teachers as well that obviously that's going to be transferred to the students that way. Right, right, for sure. Do you find it, you know, one of the things you talk about um, 
that uh, you, you talked about in, the, in that video that I mentioned was that even in the original Prussian uh, model uh, of school, that it was always kind of sold as, well, we're doing this for, you know, uh, um, for moral reasons. We want to grant every child an education and all of this. And uh, but all you have to do is really scratch the surface a little bit and see that, in fact, this was, you know, and, and even as Horace Mann himself said, they knew that the Prussian model was, you know, directed toward authoritarianism and that they were trying to, you know, encourage their their citizenry. They wanted to get them young and encourage them to be obedient to the state. Then I wonder when you see so many of these, uh, uh, you know, the the democratic uh, platforms on on school, uh, which I think just particularly Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. But I think all of them talk about it to some degree. It's always kind of like, well, um, we want to make it, uh, you know, it's it's now they're going after like government daycare, uh, get your kids before preschool, free universal pre-K, universal kindergarten if they don't have that already. Uh, now they want to wipe away uh, college debt so that everybody is pushed into school after uh, hi- high school. And when I say pushed in, I just mean, you know incentivized uh to go in right like right. Uh, if there's no if it doesn't cost anything why why would so many people who go to community college go to community college well just go to a four-year college you can go there it doesn't cost anything and it's always presented with these kind of you know these noble uh, uh values well we just want everyone to get a really good education and we just <laughs> want to take care of people and we want people who have less of a uh you know a, a good start in life to be able to you know have an equal opportunity or whatever but if you're woke to the history of school and what's kind of going on here at all, it seems pretty freaking creepy. And I must say, I wonder what the the true motives are um, because people do people do lie and people do have sinister motives at times. And I wonder how you know is it a coincidence that the people who are all about socialism also want more uh, government indoctrination of our children. No, I think that's exactly what it's about. And that's what it's always been about, regardless of a person's economic motivations, right? People who wanted state school or, or government run school or compulsory school uh, wanted to manage society. And I think that starting with the Prussian system, I mean, before that, any any desire to do this was religiously motivated. The Puritans wanted to force people to school, you know, in colonial New England. Um, but, you know, the first uh, modern schooling, I, I think, really starts with the Prussians and their goal was to scientifically manage society. The further back in time you go, the more naked the true intentions will be. Like the Prussians were pretty bold about it. I mean, the, Prussia, to become Nazi Germany 100 years after uh, they hand off their school system to the Americans and, you know, maybe like 130 years after they implement the system themselves, they had been primed for this for, for lots of like political and historical reasons for a thousand years. And, th- and that's a long story. But, you know, they didn't paint over. Uh, too much of what they were doing, and neither did Horace Mann. Uh, the people who tried to reform the system at the beginning of the 20th century, like the progressives who were kind of led, at least ceremoniously led by uh, John Dewey, who's like a really important school reform figure, they used a lot of Dewey's kind of lofty ideas about democracy and progressivism and a free society, um, and, and they kind of hid behind that. They used Dewey as a bit of a Trojan horse to cram in things like eugenics. I think a lot of the time, if you just take the the conspiratorial mindset out of it, which is hard to do and less fun to do for me, believe me, I, I love the conspiratorial mindset, I think they are just rational actors who live in a bubble and view themselves as responsible people taking the next step that 
you know, society will allow them to take through their ignorance. That has always been the story. You know, it's it's from the beginning of the Prussian system in America. It's the story of increasing leverage of scientific managers. And as far as the people are concerned, it's the story of the boiled frog. So just by the way, for, for anybody who's not familiar with uh, uh, what you're alluding to when you say take in the, the Prussian model, this is Horace Mann, who's known as the godfather of, of education in America. Mm-hmm. This, he was explicit about this, that this is what he was doing. So can you just like tell that story briefly for, for people listening? Sure. First of all, I want to tell your audience, like no matter how much – uh, Ritalin, I snort. There's no way I could get through the whole story in you know two <laughs> hours, right? Like it, it, it is a long story. It has lots of twists and turns. So if I start to ramble, Dave, please just 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 let me know, and I'll try to try to shorten it. But Prussia was Central European kingdom. It was the forerunner, um, or a lot of territorial overlap with what became Nazi Germany. Um, was a very authoritarian and militaristic society long before they had school. In fact, they were such a military state that, you know, it made like compulsory school finally enforceable because the people, you know, were so docile, they didn't want to get bayoneted by by their soldiers that, you know, they they were compliant. They were compliant people. So it worked there. But it had been a dream of states to put in some kind of mandatory schooling or training uh, for a long time. So they had a really successful uh, 18th century and they expanded their territory quite a bit. And, you know, as territories expand in Europe at this time, eventually you bump into somebody else trying to expand their territories. And the guy they bumped into was Napoleon, and that sucked for them. So they had to retreat. And, um, you know, that was like a real uh, pause for for their aristocracy and their intellectual class. And there was this philosopher named Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who at the beginning of the 1800s gave this speech called The Address to a German Nation. And he said, you know, it's time we get serious. It's time because I think they saw what what laid ahead and, and the challenges, not just from Napoleon, but from other expanding states at that time and said, you know, we need to follow Napoleon's lead and really get our people to embrace nationalism. And also, uh, you know, I mean, he didn't use these words exactly, but obedience to the state and this idea of, you know, subsumption to the state, subsumption to the collective and whether we're talking about in Prussia or the implementation of the system in America a couple decades later, this is such an important event because it is the transfer from a family and community-based approach to education to an industrial and collectivist approach. But there, like I said, the further back in time you go, the more naked the intentions are. The The setup of the school at that time, which is probably the first or second decade of the 1800s, obedient soldiers for the military – Obedient workers for mines, factories, and farms, well-subordinated civil servants, uh, well-subordinated clerks, people who thought alike on most issues, and national uniformity in thought and deed. And so they were going to inflict that on most of their population while training a smaller percentage of their population how to manage those people. So for how to do this, just so nothing I'm going to say after this is like shocking or surprising, they look to things like animal husbandry and equestrian training for cues on how they should treat children once they trap them in these schools. And then they set up a three-tiered system that you know has a, a sort of analog in the United States. The top half of 1% went to something called Akademienschulen, where they learned classical education and basically how to become the ruling class. Less than 10% of their population attended something called the Realschulen, which 
literally means real school, where they learned like um, how to be professionals and how to be managers of the entire rest of the population, 90 plus percent, who went to something called the Voxulin People's School. And they learned obedience, cooperation, uh, a kind of mythologized history of the Prussian state, and kind of, I guess what I would call like a functional literacy, because this actually becomes a theme that extends like all the way into the 1960s in the United States. Functional literacy is good. It's good. Like if you give somebody an instruction manual, they can figure out what to do with some kind of task. But reading is also kind of a dangerous window to the world. And we don't want people to have that. So it was actually the the Prussians who were the first to use this sort of symbolic way of teaching people to read. If you've ever heard of like sight words or the, the look-say method of reading, which is like some words like the. There's not really, you don't sound that out. You just eventually identify it. So kids would be given pictures and they would associate a word with a picture instead of sounding words out phonetically, which, like I said, carried on to the United States, but obviously limited people's ability to build vocabulary through sounding out words and then figuring out their meaning. So both of these methods. So it's putting, it's it's building in a ceiling to how effective a reader you're going to ultimately be. Like, you'll be able to get through basics, but you're never going to kind of... It, it, there, there is this limit there. By the way, I just have to say, and I, don't, I, I want you to keep going on this rant, mm-hmm. but it's really amazing just as you say this, the, the unbelievable similarities to just the way schooling is in 2020 yes. in America, or, or at least in, in my childhood. I mean, I think about the, the public school system in New York when I grew up, and it's, this is exactly what it was. There are like these like three schools that were like the really good schools mm-hmm. that you have to like test into to get into these really good schools. It was like uh, like Brooklyn Tech and Bronx Science and like a few of them that, that are, are the smart kids go to. Then there's all the other schools where kids are like barely literate. And then there's the like the ones kind of a little bit higher, not quite the good ones, where like the managerial class that you, you were talking about. Anyway, it's really, it's really fascinating when you think about it. I'm sorry. Anyway, keep going. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I this. Okay, so back to the the part about reading. Like this was actually this is one of the things that that John Dewey gets criticized by a lot of like conservative education critics for. Uh, long after he died, was like implementing this or, or promoting this look say method of reading, where kids are not learning to sound out words and they're limiting their vocabulary. And from the studies that I saw, uh, a kid who learned phonics. Uh, by fourth grade, would have a, vo- a vocabulary, like a functional vocabulary, 12 times what a look-say learner would have. So that's really significant. The less a person knows, the less ideas they have in their head, That also that window to the world idea, the more like stimulus response they're going to be. So there's this great quote that I think Stephen Covey, like who wrote uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He attributes it to this Holocaust survivor named Viktor Frankl, but I don't think Viktor Frankl ever said it. And the quote is paraphrased as like, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies your ability to choose your response. And in that choice lies your freedom. If you think about that, that space between stimulus and response grows by the amount of knowledge, life experience, introspection that you have. And if you don't have a lot of things to like put in your mind because you don't have the skills to put them there, that space is very narrow. So you're more programmable. You're more like the animals they husbanded and the uh, horses that they trained, which is, you know, like I said, what they based their school system on. So you are more primal, you're more stimulus response, you're more predictable, and you're easier to manage. So that is actually one of the functions of giving people a functional literacy over like a complete like classical education understanding of the world around them. So 
you uh, you asked about Horace Mann, <laughs> and uh, he looks at this system. At the, at the time, like I think maybe like the 1840s, there were a bunch of countries that were very, very interested in Prussia. And Prussia had been cool in the United States for a long time. Like around the time the country was being founded, Ben Franklin was talking about Prussia and saying, oh, the, the, look what you can accomplish with like social discipline. So like looking to Prussia as, as an admirable place or a place worth emulating in the United States, that was nothing new. But people from England, people from France and people from America, like Horace Mann, were visiting and they were looking at the society and they were kind of looking at the schools. Horace Mann never actually like saw the schools in session. He never actually talked to any students. But in 1844, he wrote this report. Uh, he would he would write these annual reports to like the Massachusetts Education Board. And the seventh one was after he came back from talking to schoolmasters and touring empty buildings, he goes, this is amazing. You know, these people tell me that they can like predict social, economic, political outcomes by, you know, the, the outputs of their schooling. It's so efficient. It's so predictable. We should bring it here. And when that happened, I mean, this is something that is so responsible for changing the character of America from, from its founding, from the Declaration of Independence, because it's transferring, you know, the power uh, from the servant, if you think about how the U.S. government was set up to be responsive to the people. And, you know, you can certainly dig into all the problems with that. It's making the servant the master, essentially, with this power, right? Because we're talking about democracy earlier in our political segment. Democracy is outstanding as long as you control the thoughts, actions, um, and, and emotions of the people who are allowed to participate in the democratic process. And that's been going on in this country for at least 170 years. So yeah. Mann is the, the biggest zealot about this system, and he writes this report, and they say they'll try it in Massachusetts. So that's what happened. And he was criticized at the time. People are like, this guy is crazy. One of the things that Mann was known for, he was very, very religious, but he was also a phrenologist. You know what phrenology is? What is it? I'm, I know I know the word, but I, I, I'm not. Oh, is that the the brain size uh, or the, the head bumps measuring like the size the head bumps? Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. So you feel you tell all kinds of things about a person's personality by feeling the bumps on their head. So he was real into that. In fact, his previous report to this education board in Massachusetts was about phrenology. So. A group of Boston schoolmasters look at the seventh annual report. They go, this guy's an idiot. He's a phrenologist. Um, he wants to have this like non-book pedagogy. He, he has this crazy method that they're using, like the symbolic-based way of reading. We don't want this in our schools. But unfortunately, it was the wrong time for criticism of it because slavery was about to end. The Industrial Revolution was about to begin. And this was, you know, this was a scientific, rational choice for America to bring a system like this here. And, you know, that's what happened. So, like, you were kind of saying before about the, uh, you know, if, if you're willing to turn off the conspiratorial part of your brain, which I, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I enjoy that. But sometimes it is more, like, uh, uh, accurate to even just forget about that stuff. So many of the problems, I think, with the state in general are the perverse incentives. And I think that's part of the reason why the, these ideas just catch on like wildfire, because it's, you know, it's almost like if I were, you know, let's say like a, um, you you uh, raise a certain amount of money, you know, doing the school sucks uh, uh, project and you're trying to figure out how to allocate 
um, you know, like the like the resources, like what we should spend on the equipment for the show or what we should spend on more research or whatever. And, and you know, then like what you're going to spend as, you know, just to, to pay your bills and things like that. And if there's like two experts and one of them comes to you and says like, well, I've run the numbers and I think, you know, you should pay yourself $20,000 a year. And then another expert comes and says, I think you should pay yourself $100,000 a year. You're, you're kind of just incentivized to go, okay, I like this second expert. And now I've got an expert telling me I can have $100,000 a year. That kind of sounds nice. And I think that you see this all the time with the government. Um, whether, you know, people be like, uh, they'll be like, well, why did all these, you know, why did all these governments fall in love with Keynes when, you know, Hayek was making better arguments than him? And it's like, well, Keynes is arguing that y- here's a justification for you taking a lot more power. And all of these, you know, it's, it's the same reason why they love Rawls so much. All of these guys who aren't making very impressive arguments, but they're an intellectual who's giving you an excuse to amass a lot more power. And it seems like this was just like the perfect excuse for the government to, to in the name, you know, with, with a justified, uh, um, you know, cover, say, oh man, we are going to amass power in, in a way that will, you know, obviously would be in our, the state's uh, interest. It seems to me like that's, that's part of the reason why this idea of government schools just took off. It is absolutely the golden egg laying goose. Right. I mean, what I identified as sort of the, the three implicit lessons of school very early on in doing my show uh, were obedience, conformity, and those two things together, like obedience, which is just absolving yourself of personal responsibility or decision making, conformity, absolving yourself of um, you know individual identity, uh, is obviously going to produce uh, a kind of apathy, right? That makes people very pliable. And, you know, you know, you know what really changed me? You know what really got me away from the conspiratorial mindset on this is um, Thaddeus Russell's book. Have you read A Renegade History of the United States? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, me too. It's a, it's a fantastic book. And, you know, in it, he's telling these stories, and I'm kind of cartoonifying them for our conversation here because I don't exactly remember. But, like, a group of Irish immigrants are working on some kind of uh, infrastructure project. But instead of actually, like, building the bridge, they just drink all day. And throw bottles at each other. And then when the person in charge of this public works project won't pay them, uh, they blow up the bridge. Okay. So if that's like pre-public school infrastructure, I'm sympathetic, right? I'm sympathetic to, to the responsible people trying to hold American society together. And I think to, to humanize them a little bit more, because like you said, like, yeah, it's fun to wander into the the conspiracy stuff when um, you ascribe too much wickedness to it or make it sound too far-fetched, it becomes very, very easy to dismiss as conspiracy theory. Like, oh, this is like a John Birch Society thing or something like that. So I always try to step into the shoes at the various stages of doing this and understand uh, why the people were trying to do it. And the easiest time to do that is in like the last quarter of the 1800s and the first quarter of the 1900s, when American society for, for people who were fans of the established order, who were comfortable with the country as it was, that landscape must have been absolutely terrifying. So if you're the Rockefellers or the Carnegies and, and you're saying, what are we going to do? Like that to me, I'm, I'm completely sympathetic to that mindset, even if I'm horrified by the results. Like I understand why this happened. And when those kinds of people are desperate to maintain order in society and, and like in a kind of industrial harmony. And they say, who can help us do this? And they turn to academia and they're willing to throw money at it. 
Um, obviously, even if the academics who are more progressive, like they don't seem like they'd be allies, right? Like industrialists and progressives. But um, if there's money, you know, changing hands and, you know, the Rockefellers are bankrolling the teacher's college at Columbia University, that's going to be uh, a mutually beneficial relationship. And, and that was a lot of what happened uh, in not at the beginning of school, but in the early days of school. So there's lots of examples of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and that's you know I I mean it's funny because there that alignment and by the way uh, if you haven't read it's it's a very uh, thick book but uh, Murray Rothbard's uh, the Progressive Era which the Mises Institute just put out I think last year or the year before is just great at going through a lot of uh, uh, these different uh, dynamics in the Progressive Era but it was always this kind of weird um, what might seem like an unlikely alliance between big business and the progressives. And even though they, they were, you know, it was, it's almost like a WWF wrestling type thing where they're, they're uh, you know, they're foes in front of the camera. But behind the scenes, they're always kind of working together because there's always these, like, perverse incentives and these beneficial relationships. And that still goes on today. I still see uh, um, a lot of people uh, on, like, the populist right who are shocked by this. But where it's like, you know, the woke capitalism thing where these, these big companies are in bed with the progressives of today, even though they, you would think they're against capitalism and against these guys. But it works out in their favor. The the big businessmen get a lot of benefits out of big government and the the you – know, Obviously, like the, there's lots of benefits that you can get from working with big business. They have a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, and and right, you see this, you see this right away. Where the um, the the robber barons who are made out to. Um, you know, in mainstream history, it's kind of like, well, they exploited people through their capitalist uh, enterprises. But if you look back at it, the, the, all of their capitalist enterprises pretty much just lifted up poor people in this country. But it was when they started getting into, you know, like um, uh, buying off antitrust legislation to, to yep. squash their competitors, when they get into, you know, donating all of this money to school. It's really their charitable um, undertakings and, and, and they're, you know, uh, of course, donating to political campaigns is really where, you know, in a weird way, these people do deserve to be uh, um, villainized, but for different reasons. Sure. Uh, you know, in a lot of the things that we say, we kind of run into this rhetorical problem of we could certainly be interpreted as being anti-state in a lot of our political uh, positions. So when we express this to other people or we're trying to be persuasive, we often become allied with corporations, right? I'm sure you've had this happen, right? Like, oh, you're you're an apologist for all these corporate interests if you're against the state because people kind of have that dichotomy. And I think school history is really the best representation of the nexus that exists between the two. A lot of it is philanthropy from industrialists, but all of that philanthropy has, uh, you know, calculated economic purpose to it. And um, what they were able to achieve, and I, I know Rothbard talks about this in that book, is that harmony. You know, I mean, one of the things why, why Prussia was such a marvel for so many of these people into the 20th century. And the Prussians actually set up like a system of higher education where you could go and you could earn this degree called the PhD, right? So Americans would go over there to get this PhD from Prussia. And the prestige it had attached to it was it came from this, uh, you were educated in this utopia, this magical place that had found like perfect harmony between government, uh, the academy, and industry, right? So that was like that was their perfect world. That's what they were trying to create in that era in the United States. 
Yeah, they sure were successful with it. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it's easy to kind of like talk about, you know, how, how horrific we think the, the results have been. But I've, I've run up against this many times throughout the history of, of doing this show and where you almost have to, uh, at least to some degree, admire your enemy. Like, God damn, they are good. I mean, imagine your goal was to get the state in charge of, in, of indoctrinating the youth and then convincing everybody that this is what education was. Not <laughs> yeah. just that school was part of education, but that it was education and that this was the noblest of things to do. And now look at the results and you'd be like, wow, that was a success. Right. Absolutely. And once this precedent was set, whether it would really happen, I mean, the, the making people go to school, like the system started being imported here like 170 years ago, but making people go to school was a very gradual process. I think Massachusetts was the first state that ever had a compulsory attendance law, and that was like the middle of the 1800s, 1850. Um, and like any government program, from there, they're like, okay, we're going to make a statewide law, but people will have to go to school for like 10 to 12 weeks. And then it was like, all right, well, it's going to be 16 weeks, but it's going to be for all kids 9 to 12 instead of all kids 10 to 12. And, you know, then more people come in, the periods get longer, and they say, you know, boy, this really needs some supervision. And it just expands and expands and expands. And then in the, the 20th uh, century, child labor laws end at the beginning. So there you, what are you going to do with all these other kids now? And um, I think by, like, 1918, so, like, you know, Heart of the progressive era, all 48 states, I think, all 48 states that existed at that time had uh, compulsory attendance laws. But it was, I mean, so the whole process took 70 years to do that. But the precedent was set, back to what you were saying, in the beginning, right? And collectivism just gets ratcheted up at every stage. And at every turn of the screw, the system becomes more accepted. People were horrified when they first heard about this. But the system becomes more accepted. And it becomes harder and harder to imagine society without it. And all that it does becomes fine. And once it becomes fine, for most people, unfortunately, it becomes invisible. Like, I remember when they were rolling out Common Core, and I said, I guarantee in eight years, people will be saying, how would we ever live without it? Right? Like, everybody was up yeah. in arms about Common Core. I said, in eight years, it will be like, public school wouldn't even work without this. And that's always been the case. Just one more turn of the screw. Yeah, and it seems like that's kind of like the um, – and that's almost like the role of uh, Conservatism, Inc., is they, like, feign a little bit of, like, we're against this. <sighs> yeah. And then five years later, they just accept it, and it's like, no, of course we would never roll that back. That was always, you know, a great conservative achievement. Like, they, it always just becomes – now it's just accepted into the, the – and, and, you know, you can, of course, test this at the, the fact that, you know, Michael Malice uh, talks about this all the time. But the idea that, um, you know, like in the, say, like early 70s – you might have found some conservatives who are still talking about rolling back Social Security and, and Medi or, or Medicare and, and, you know, the, the Great Society. But nowadays you would never accept that. In the 40s, you would have some conservatives talking about rolling back Social Security or the, or the New Deal. Or it's called the Green New Deal, the original New Deal. Um, and uh, nowadays that's just obviously a given that, you know, anything that, you know, the great FDR did. And, of course, Reagan, the, the Republican hero, is like, I'm an FDR guy. You know, like that was his hero. So whatever was accepted one generation ago just becomes like a given and like you said with common core even less than than a generation later yeah it is, uh, it, it's quite a system yeah i think michael has this synopsis like this numerical synopsis that i've heard him use a couple of times for one of the the this is the big theme of the or a big theme in the new right where like when you talk about the progressive wing of the left and the you know 
the preservationist, the conservative, the negotiation begins and the conservatives say, say, you know, you get zero and the progressives say, we want 10 and the conservatives say, okay, five. And then the next negotiation starts at five and they yeah. want 15. So they get to 10. And that, I mean, that was the story all, all throughout the, the 20th century. And if I, I feel like I'm pretty close to what I've heard him say on that, but that idea certainly holds. They conserved ultimately nothing. Certainly, if you look at it from the perspective of government growth or even just of preserving of, of uh, culture, I mean, it's it's always a one way street. Uh, the screw gets tightened. It might pause for a little bit, but it never really seems to get loosened, at least in any meaningful uh, way. Um, so I was curious what you know, because I was watching the uh, the State of the Union the other day oh. and Donald Trump did have uh, one little bit where he talked about education and he really he stood up pretty hard for uh, school choice and and vouchers and, and charter schools and that that type of uh, thing. Of course, this was uh, very much uh, uh, demonized. Uh, um, in the uh, the Democrat uh, uh, responses to the State of the Union, and none of the Democrats were were clapping much for this. But do you you know there's a lot of uh, libertarians over the years have kind of uh, championed charter schools and that type of thing. Do you do you get behind that, or do you see that as something that's not really going to be an effective solution? Um, I'm behind it, but whether it's ultimately going to be an effective solution, I mean, it's not. It's certainly not a panacea. I think we would both agree with that. Um, I like that it's happening just like I like that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are happening because it means that people right. are starting to like look, start a conversation and look for solutions, even if they don't have enough information. Right. They they don't know anything about passion driven or purpose driven educations. They, they know what the school model has been and they're just trying to tweak it in some new way that they see as solving a lot of the problems they've identified, but they're not willing to like strike the root of the whole system yet. But I mean, the the scrambling to to find something different, I think, is a good sign. The reason why I don't think it's much of a solution and I support it. And I used to be way much more of a purist on this, you know, like 10 years ago when I was totally like, like new libertarian, completely out of touch with realities of the world. I was like, no, everyone has to be unschooled. You know, and now I understand like how far fetched that is. And uh, I also realize there's problems with the sentence. Everybody has to be unschooled if I'm <laughs> you know, advocating for educational freedom. But ultimately, if enough money transfers into the hands of these sort of semi private, I mean, they're still like in the public domain that teachers unions will see this as a cash cow. Right. And they'll say, well, if public money is going to go into the hands of unaccountable semi-private institutions, they must have the same oversight and unionization that the public schools enjoy. So all those teachers should be unionized. And I think what you would actually have, because, you know, you're using this voucher system, which is like a return on property tax. So it's so-called public money, which is which means that what it threatens to do, I think, is have all of these private schools fall under the regulatory apparatus of the public system. And I don't think that would be good. So, um, yeah. yeah, I like that it's happening. Uh, but, you know, charter school has the same amount of precision as a term as like school. Right. School could be the shittiest place you ever imagined in Prussia in 1820, or it could be a trade school that's going to change your life. They're both called school. 
charter school is no more uh, specific than that. Like some charter schools are great. You know, there's magnet schools. There's people who are really committed to these ideas. There's people who are bringing like, you know, revolutionary um, educational philosophies into charter schools. But then there's charter schools that show up in in strip malls, like as fly-by-night operations. Or that uh, TM Landry uh, in in Louisiana uh, a couple years ago, this was a big scandal. They said they could get all these kids into Ivy League schools and they were cooking their books in all kinds of ways to, to do. I mean, they were forging tests for kids to get admissions to schools that they weren't like intellectually equipped to go to. So charter schools, they'd have to be evaluated like one by one to really make uh, an informed decision about, you know, whether they're helpful for the kids who are there or not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I I agree with uh, with all of that. Do you see you know, you've you've been at this for a while now. Like you said, you you were kind of one of the first uh, like prominent libertarian podcasts and, and really kind of the one that that specializes in this area and this very very you know crucial area i mean if you're you, you got to recognize that the fact that the government has control of schooling the kids is is going to lead toward a pro-government bias i mean that's the, everybody should see this as a very important uh uh issue um and I got to say, since having a child, I see it as that much more of an important issue. Like, God, I enjoyed seeing that sad look on Kamala Harris's face as she's sitting there and the, watching the State of the Union, knowing she's out of the, uh, the race for president. This woman who was bragging about arresting parents for truancy. I mean, like, that's, you know, like in the same way that libertarians go, um, and, and quite correctly, will say, well, you know, if there's property tax, you don't really own property. Sure. Because if you, basically the government is saying, if you don't, you know, pay me the fucking rent or whatever you want to call it. I take your property away. Well, then you're basically renting from the government. You don't really own it. Well, in the same sense, if if the government is saying, if you don't send me your kids, uh, I'm going to take your kids away from you. Well, you know, who who really owns your children there? And there's there's few things that I would speak of in such radical language. But somebody telling me they're going to take my kid away from me is like, well, I I may have to die for that. Like that's not going to be that's that's not just like you know I'll I'll grit my teeth and pay my taxes every year. But your kid is a little bit different. Anyway, yeah. The question I was trying to get to, uh, what do you do? You see anything like a, like a silver lining in all of this? There's the stuff that you're doing. You mentioned Thaddeus Russell before. He's got the Renegade University stuff. The internet exists now. What do you think could potentially be a solution? What's the case for optimism? Okay, well, they're obviously numerous, right? The number of people who've taken to homeschooling and unschooling, I think, is great. Uh, the more people realize the important, and this is happening, and there's never been more uh, resources. Uh, leading to leading people to this discovery, which is the move back from family and community based uh, or to back to family and community based education from this industrial collectivist education. And on the seacoast in New Hampshire, a lot of the people who gravitated to that area, they were very entrepreneurial, they were very family focused, and they were able to set up a community that um, you know, had all kinds of support for parents, had all kinds of opportunities for kids to interact with each other around common interests. Eventually, they were able to start like a learning center there. It was called Big Fish. And, uh, you know, so so now like it's offloading some of the responsibility from parents where kids can actually go to a place that they know is supportive of, of their educational mission as parents. The parents work together, you know, to take some of that load away. And I think that would be like a really important thing is that it's never been easier to come together around common educational interests, right, for parents, which is which I think is always the biggest obstacle. But people are so well networked and there's so much parental support. Uh, consciousness about things like de-schooling, which is like, 
most of us went to school. So if we have kids, we still might have leftovers from, you know, just internalized from that experience. And, and being conscious about that and talking to other people who are struggling through the same process is, is really, really important. Uh, so, you know, the rise of unschooling, the rise of community learning centers, the resurgence in like apprenticeship programs, the one that I promote all the time on my show is called Praxis. Have you ever heard of Praxis? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Praxis was, uh, you know, founded by uh, Isaac Morehouse, uh, who's been a guest on my show. And I just think about this as an overpass, right? Like if co- if the school system and college is kind of like a, a rotary that you have a very hard time getting out of with traffic, Praxis seem- to me seems like an overpass. Praxis is a basically a professional training program where they pair you up with a company. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. The company pays you. It's a cash positive uh, endeavor in that the company will pay you more than the program costs. And I think you're done with the entire thing in like 18 months. Right. So you're not languishing in school for years and years and years, maybe getting something that's useful. Uh, If you complete the program successfully, the company you apprentice with will hire you uh, once you complete the program. And that is the model. And I've said this on my show before, as much as I love all those guys, as much as I love Praxis, I hope they have a lot of competition for that, because uh, that is just I, I mean, higher education or whatever we want to call it. There's probably a more name that's a name that's more accurate than that. Um, has become such a drag on so many young people uh, from my generation, from the uh, from the next generation at this point. And the tune about it is not changing that much as far as what kids are being told to do in school. Like the 13th grade, I mean, there, there are schools where in like middle school and early in high school, kids are being told that their graduation year is whatever year they finish high school plus four, right? So you don't graduate until you get your college degree. And what that's like inculcating into kids is you're a failure if you don't do this, if you think about other options. So now, like, if you don't finish high school, you'll work at McDonald's has been extended to uh, you have to go all the way through college if you want to be successful in this educational experience. So I see that as a real problem that the story hasn't changed as far as like, you know, I mean, there's always been trade schools and vocational programs, but most kids who are like, you know, at a certain level in school or pursuing, you know, a certain course of study academically, they're being told that they have to go to college or they're a failure. And that's like the most important thing, I think, that needs to change. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love that. And, and I agree with you. And all of this stuff, I mean, Praxis is, is incredible. I love the homeschooling movement. I mean, the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum and things like that, I just think are, are like wonderful. And the it, it might be, which is all, often the case for libertarians, is that our best shot at victory is the fact that the uh, the state often, you know, is unsustainable and overplays its hand. And, you know, I... um. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying for years on the podcast where, you know, you go like, uh, okay, so the, you know, college or the, the higher education, whatever, we, we'll come up with a better term for that. The higher indoctrination system, you have more and more people going. You have the prices going up and up and up, outpacing, you know, the, the price of inflation by two, three, four times, uh, you know, uh, yep. more and more people going, the price going up and up, the degree becoming more and more, uh, you know, less and less valuable. You're like, okay, this this does seem somewhat unsustainable. And I remember the movie that um, with Steve Carell about the uh, about the housing crash. God damn it, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, something the about movie. betting the big, the big short. short. 
Yeah. The, the big short. There we go. The big short. Thank you. Uh, and so in the big short, there's this one point where he's going around like on the ground to see whether or not he thinks there's a, uh, a housing bubble. And he meets a stripper who's got like three houses or something like that. And he's like, there's a bubble. There's definitely a bubble. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at my brother's graduation. This is like like a few years ago. My, my much younger brother graduated college and they were reading uh, the the majors that people were graduating. And I mean, I can't tell you how many people. It was just like everything was like uh, gender studies, gender studies, environmental studies, gender studies. So, like the, the the things that used to seem like goofy degrees were, were now like the reasonable ones. Like it'd be like gender studies, gender studies, environmental studies, sociology. And you'd be yep. like, thank God there's a sociology <laughs> degree. And I, I remember seeing that and being like, uh, like I, I had that Steve Carell moment. I was like, oh, this is, absolutely a bubble like there is no way 20 30 years from now there are this many jobs for a gender studies major out there i mean this has to collapse it's the biggest right i think it's twice the size of the housing bubble in terms of debt outstanding okay Mm -hmm. and austrian economists i've heard some debate as to whether or not this even fits into um you know the definition of bubble right like in the tech bubble there were assets to take when it burst in the housing bubble, there were assets to take when it burst. So there was a way out other than bailouts. But now, you know, you have a bubble twice the size. I think it's close to $2 trillion. And I think it's much higher than people actually think it is or what's been reported. When this bursts, there's nothing to take from anybody, which is, um, you know, an incredible statement about higher education in itself. But this is uncollateralized. So I don't know what that means. But it's definitely like the rules that apply to the two previous bubbles we lived through don't apply to this one. And that's a little bit scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's what, what do you take? It, it, not even and even in something that you couldn't like monetize, it, it's not even as if you had someone like, um, you know, who's got like an engineering degree or something like that. And it's like, OK, there's really nothing there, but they at least have this knowledge base or something. You're talking about a gender studies major. I mean, I don't. I mean to be insulting if anybody listening has one of those, although not too many of those guys listen to this podcast. What could po- there's nothing to be liquidated? You literally you you have been convinced of the the most hyper weirdo left wing propaganda. Like you come out just believing something about how there's no such thing as gender. Nobody in real life even buys the information that you've been taught, and this can't possibly be put toward any type of economic productivity. It really is. No. It's astounding. You've literally been rendered less valuable to the world by that experience. By that so-called education, you are now more useless in the actual world because you're entitled. You, you've internalized, even more so, internalized a victim mentality. And we see people going out into the work world with this mindset. And sometimes they, they manage to destroy a whole company with this shit. You know, and I think I know this is a controversial position for libertarians, but I think this is completely predatory as far as like assigning this debt to these kids because they haven't been given the education to properly make that decision at 17 years old. You know, and obviously the the loans are given out very easily because there's no reliable markers for a person's credit worthiness at that point. Uh, And obviously you have the, the, the politics of promoting opportunity is the same thing with the housing bubble. It's like trying to put people in houses. I was telling this story recently. I, I, when I started teaching, uh, I worked at this boarding school. It was really like high burnout environment. So the people who ran the school were like trying to, you know, trap people like me who was like 24, 25 years old, energetic in that town. So the director of the school, uh, he says to me, he goes, go buy a house. Go buy a house in this town. I said, I make $32,000 a year. This was like 
2005 maybe he's like anybody can buy a house and he was right strippers can buy three so you see something that makes no economic sense just like before school to go to the housing bubble where the politics of opportunity and equity fairness all these things like let's get everybody in a house and that'll feel good same thing with education people knew it made no sense an entire industry rose up against uh, you know to to bet against what was happening in the housing market and they did okay uh, as covered in the big short so there's no way to do that in education, but a lot of people are going to get screwed. But it's based on the same problem, right? Uh, th- this politics of um, promoting opportunity for everybody just to feel good. But I, I know the, the, the argument is like, well, you know, they signed the paper, so th- they're responsible. But I think there needs to be a more nuanced way of thinking about that. I think that's, um, that's a heuristic that's not really getting into the, the reality of this situation. I completely agree with you on that. And uh, by the way, just to add on to your point that all those people, you know, the the industry bidding against the housing market, I mean, people, the, the whole credit default swap industry would have been a lot more successful if the government hadn't come in and bailed out uh, the banks and hadn't come in and uh, right. uh, propped up the, the housing market after that. I mean, there, you would have stood to make a lot more money betting against the housing market if they had just let the thing uh, uh, crash. But you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I, I, I know libertarians. The, the, the funny thing is that it's not so controversial if you're pointing out uh say loans from like um the the imf to some some third world country to point out that it's like this is not really a legitimate loan i mean this is like trapping third world countries into this system and and it's completely unfair and 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 i agree with you i mean look this this whole college scam has been uh it's an open conspiracy between big banks government officials and and colleges and they're screwing over 17, 18-year-olds with that, it, it at least warrants a, a more nuanced conversation, as you say. Now, I also – I'm a little skeptical about the plans to um, uh, wipe away student debt just because of how unfair it is to the people who did the right thing or, you know, or, or, or people who paid back their, their student loans. And I, I hate rewarding you know, the, the people who were less fiscally responsible and punishing the ones who were responsible. But I certainly agree with you. I, I mean, look, Murray Rothbard always uh, said that his position on government debt was that we should uh, we should be pro default, mm-hmm. default and walk away from it. And, um, you know, there's there's like that's the, you know, it's, it's like I think about um, the debt that the Soviet Union owed uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And you're like, well, what are you going to say? That the what the Russian citizens own that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just fu- they just stood up and over- overthrew the most oppressive government in European history. You're going to tell me they owe the money that other people were lending to the government that was oppressing them? It's you know these these situations are they're somewhat complicated. But I certainly think, if nothing else, libertarians should have some degree of sympathy. Uh, for for these kids who were clearly uh, preyed preyed upon. Yeah, absolutely. And fifteen percent of people in that situation are taking Rothbard's advice right now. By the way, at least fifteen percent. Yeah. It might be higher. The consequences of that are are significant, right? It means maybe not being able to buy a house, not being able to have a new car, um, you know, interfering with um, quality of life things in 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 a major major way for a lot of these people. So uh, yeah, like I said, I, I would like people to take it one step further. This whole let the market decide thing. It frustrates me because in terms of education at all levels, this is really like the most overlooked issue in the libertarian discussion is schooling versus education. I really wish it got more attention and I appreciate the attention it got here today. Being an intelligent actor in the market, 
requires critical thinking skills, decision-making skills. It requires uh, self-knowledge. So uh, if people aren't getting those things, the market decisions are not some kind of god. People need to pay more attention to the way that people are schooled could disrupt the arrival or slow the arrival of the world that we actually want, right? The market can't decide if it's filled with people making bad decisions or uninformed decisions. So, but we want the market to decide. We want the market to decide, which is why I think this is such an important industry or uh, issue that people acting in the market are better decision makers because they have better critical thinking skills and more self-knowledge, which are two things that school is never going to deliver. Well, right. And, and what, what bothers me so much about that argument, and I've seen this from a lot of different uh, libertarians, but it's like when, when you say let the market decide, it's, it's like that's what I'm doing. I'm mm-hmm. obviously not advocating any type of government law or any type of force or violence against people. I'm participating in the market and trying my best to help the market decide. I mean, if everybody, if we were just a free market of, of libertarians who all said, well, let the market decide, right. then I guess it's like, what? Like, what, what only the non-libertarians get to enforce their will on anyone else? And of course, people like, it's like, yes, I agree. The market should decide. But also sometimes when things are, are wrong or, or, you know, at least as from our perspective or anyone's perspective you're participating in the market as well and you have a right to kind of insert your voice into out, that yep. that conversation right so it's just you know it's, it's it's like that that to me is just i don't know it's it seems like a fairly uh fairly obvious point that i'm surprised is, is even controversial and i'll tell you this that you know i and this is somewhere where i'm sure i have my own shortcomings and i've failed at times because i am so um just disgusted and appalled by the social justice warrior movement, the the radical kind of political correct crap that that comes out of college campuses. But I, I think I could do a little bit better, and probably many of us could, at empathizing with uh, some of these kids because quite often um, the people who are out there, like the craziest social justice warriors you know, are people who are, first of all, a lot of times they have some um, some – some legit mental health issues mm-hmm. uh and and also these are people who have really been propagandized um and and i'm not sure the blame should should fall you know squarely on their shoulders well also like shining the spotlight on those people fails to recognize the larger problems in the system right it's like a it's a distraction because it's the most entertaining thing let's look at a specific example Yale University, maybe like five or six years ago, where the kids were flipping. This was this was like the opening salvo in the social justice war, as far as I was concerned. Kids at Yale University corner a professor in a courtyard and they start yelling at him uh, and telling him that, you know, he doesn't belong there. And uh, what the story was behind it is his wife had written a a, a sort of, you know, not even like to the entire student body, but just like an interfaculty email saying like, hey, I don't think we should be getting so worked up about what kids are for Halloween. It's Halloween. Let's not go crazy about this. And the students demanded that woman and her husband, who were both faculty at the school, pack their shit up and leave. Now, on the surface, that looks ridiculous. But if you think about, you know, what higher education has has done and has has tried to be just in this bubble of what is often called racial liberalism right so like the progressives 
that we talked about earlier in the conversation, they were all for eugenics and sterilization and controlling black people in every single way they could until they saw those ideas in practice at the end of World War II. And they said, oh, shit, maybe we should, like, try to be more like their parents or something, you know, instead of, like, sterilization, eugenics and promoting, like, certain practices and breeding. And that became a project in higher education starting in the 1960s. So it's like, we, the white saviors, let's import all these people into our institutions, you know, even if they come from completely alien environments, and, uh, you know, we'll put them on display to show how tolerant and enlightened we are. Now, they never say out this, all this out loud, because if they did, they'd realize they're fucking stupid, right? But that has been a project in higher education for like 50 years at this point. But those kids come to these places and they're in a completely alien world. And so like maybe for them, and not to mention all the indoctrination that they are getting there, like you said, they come there and they expect the school and the people who work at the school to play kind of like a larger role in their life. Because they're just there as college policy to be ornamental, to enrich the experience of white students, right? That's what racial liberalism is all about. And they pay a price for that emotionally. And I think that's what you saw at Yale University. But the way it played in conservative media is like, look at these people flipping out about Halloween costumes. It was so much more than that. But making it about that spectacle erased every like deeper problem in play in that situation in higher education, not just what was being taught, but also like the culture, right? And the policy of the schools themselves. And, and because they don't have this capacity for self-reflection, because they live in this bubble, they will never look and say, holy shit, because their whole identity is wrapped up in this. So they won't say, wow, yeah. you know, the things we tried to do to help black people really hurt black people. That day's never coming for them. Right. So I reacted when I first saw that Yale uh, drama the same way everybody else did. And the more I learned about it, the more I thought about it. Thaddeus Russell was also really helpful with that. We talked we did a three part series on um, academic conformism and covered all this. But, yeah, it's giving people a spectacle so they never actually understand the depth and the breadth of the problems with these institutions. Dude, that is such a good point, man. Like, goddamn, that is such a good point. And it's so, you know, I'm, and, and I got to say, I'm, I'm almost a little disappointed in myself because I do fall into it. I fall into it as much as anybody. I do too, and it's still. it's easy to. I, you know, I don't know what it is exactly about it. It's so easy to just get trapped into this, this situation where, number one, it's like these kids, they just have all of these qualities that, that provoke so yep. they're they're entitled and they're snot-nosed kids they're making the stupidest arguments ever so it's just easy to own them you know it's easy to watch one of these videos of like ben shapiro arguing with a a 19 year old who says there's 72 genders and you're like oh he dunked on her and yeah that's great but the problem is maybe i'm turning back on the conspiratorial part of my mind but whether or not it's a conspiracy in effect it works this way because it distracts you from what the actual conversation conversation should be about and as always the state gets to kind of be invisible while we fight this culture war like i talk about this all the time um with the the charlottesville thing that mm -hmm. got such a big you know became such a big skeptical where it's like well there's these two groups and there's antifa and then there's the white nationalists and they have this clash and you're supposed to say you know like this group is terrible and this group are the good guys or donald trump made the huge mistake of saying you know something about both sides and even if that was taken out of context you can't even say anything about both sides and then like you you look at it and you're like well actually there's three sides there were three sides there 
there was Antifa, there were the white nationalists, and there were the cops. Yep. Okay, that is the third group there. And the cops who are charged, not only charged with security, but who maintain a monopoly on security, led the white nationalists into this group of Antifa and made it a shit show that it didn't have to be. And that gets like not a fraction of the attention that the other groups get. And, you know, it's like I'll tell you what I was thinking about as you're saying this, like you give them a distraction it's – I'm thinking about the State of the Union yesterday where what everybody's talking about is like Donald Trump snubbed Nancy Pelosi at the beginning and didn't shake her hand. And then at the end of the State of the Union, Nancy Pelosi stood up and ripped up Donald Trump's speech. And that's and, – and it's easy to get sucked into that. It's like that's what everyone's talking about. Oh, look at this. It's like – like first off, it's just the most childish shit uh, 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 you, could, you could imagine. But – then you sit there and you're like, okay, so Nancy Pelosi stood up and ripped up Donald Trump's speech. Oh, my God, the resistance. This woman approved the biggest military budget in human history. She's signed off on the president having all of these new spying powers. There's not one inch of executive power that she's actually stood up and challenged him on. But she rips a speech, so now we can all look at this distraction as, wow, look at the battle between these two guys. And it's like, yeah, none of this is actually what matters. Like, if you actually wanted to be the resistance against Donald Trump, you know, there, there's a million different ways she could hold him accountable or, or limit his power she doesn't do any of it but it's very easy to fall for this distraction because there's something so it's like they play on our human tendencies of just being like oh look she ripped up the speech on tv oh look at this snowflake with purple hair calling this guy you know a racist for saying kids can wear halloween costumes it's very tempting yeah so the generalization between these stories is kind of like there's all of this discord on the service uh, surface but there's kind of this nice harmony behind the scenes yeah. 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 I think I Berkeley, think so. you know, Berkeley was a great example of that, too. You look at Berkeley then and now Berkeley was the birth of the free speech movement in the 1960s. And that wasn't a totally unified political uh, movement. But I think people were more pointed in who they saw as as the enemy. Right. That was sort of the original like raging against the machine, at least in the modern era. And they pointed a lot of it at their college. Right. At that that like this is authority, but it was directed towards all of these, um, you know, actions of the state, the war in Vietnam, uh, segregation laws. It, it had lots of different lots of tension in that place. But you look at Berkeley in 2017. Remember the Battle of Berkeley with like Lauren Southern versus all of the the Antifa people and you know, throwing bottles with pee. Like, that's the, that happened at the same place. And I think that's, like, one of the great tricks of the establishment where in 1967 you have this unity, you have this direction for all of this anger. And then in there in 2017, uh, what is that, uh, 50 years later, you have a war. Like, like the establishment uh, says, yo, shouldn't you guys be uh, fighting each other or something? Like, wouldn't that be better? Uh, and I think there's there's lots of reasons why that happened, too. Obviously, so, social media had a huge impact as far as, like, raising the echo chamber walls and dividing people further. Uh, but, but that's another example. That student protest movement in the 60s was directed. And then 50 years later, it was just chaos. You know, yeah. The, yeah. all of the problems, like all of those uh, those issues with higher education that I was talking about a minute ago, they march on unnoticed yeah that's right and so as as long as we're pitted against each other we never uh end up looking up at what our uh our common enemy 
uh, ought to be. Right. Um, well, dude, listen, we're, we're up uh, over time. We've got another show coming into the studio. But, man, I just love this. We're going to have to do this again, uh, hopefully sometime soon. I, I really appreciate you coming on, Brett. Everybody needs to go to uh, schoolsucksproject.com. Go check out the School Sucks podcast. It's, it's fantastic. If you enjoyed this conversation, there's just uh, uh, hours and hours and hours of really, really great stuff there, man. So, Brett, thank you so much for coming on, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. This was fantastic. All right. We will uh, we will be, as I said, a little bit late with our Friday episode, but by Saturday, we will have a brand new episode out for you guys. All right. Goodbye. Dude, thank you so much, man. That was great. And I really, really enjoyed that uh, that closing uh, yeah, portion. Yeah, that came together really nicely. I put a lot of notes in front of me. Unfortunately, I didn't have to use any, and I think that makes for a, a better thing. So uh, love the questions and uh, be happy to do it anytime in the future. Really appreciate it. All right, dude, let's do it again soon. Thanks again, brother. All right, take care, Dave. Oh,